Cold War, rock and roll, civil rights, suburbia. These are some of the highlights of the baby boomer generation, a two-decade explosion of children born in the years following World War II. To give you a better idea of why this generation is so important, here are five numbers that you should know. This is the number of people in the baby boomer generation born between 1946 and 1964. They were the largest generation in U.S. history at the time and represented nearly 40% of the population. Boomers grew up during the height of American prosperity, enjoying health, security, and consumer comforts never before seen in American history. This is the number of soldiers in the U.S. military that returned home after serving in World War II. They were eager to start families, hopeful that their children would enjoy a more prosperous America filled with the ideals and morals they fought for overseas. This is the amount of money that American soldiers got when they came home from World War I. World War II vets had it way better thanks to the GI Bill. The GI Bill was a piece of legislation that gave them the ability to attend college and buy a home. Things that allowed them to be secure and starting a family. The helping hand provided by the GI Bill contributed to the rise of baby boomer prosperity. By the way, for those who don't know what GI stands for, it's government issue. And it was a nickname for American soldiers. This is the percentage of disposable income controlled by baby boomers in America today. And with all that dough to throw around, they're big spenders. And where does most of their money go? Towards travel, health, wellness, and pampering their pets. That's right. That money goes to dog haircuts. Haircuts for dogs. That's it. 2041. This is the year that the U.S. is expected to run out of money for Social Security, the federal program that provides financial benefits for retired people. Boomers are retiring in droves, meaning more people will be dependent on Social Security. It also means less workers in the labor force paying taxes to fund those benefits. 2041 is a long way off, though, and experts believe that raising the retirement age and changing Social Security structure can help save it. Baby boomers were one of the most influential generations in history. They changed American society and gave the next generations the cultural freedoms they enjoy. Without baby boomers, America wouldn't be as free or prosperous as it is today. Young people. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of all generations. And you desire people of every generation to know you and your love for them. Help us, Lord, to learn how to pass it on to all that they may come to a saving relationship that will last for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So who are the boomers anyway? The, the generation born between 1946 and 64 is known by a number of different names. They're known as the post-war generation or war babies, uh, sometimes called uh, sandwich babies in that the Boomers find themselves caring for their aging parents and raising their own children behind them. There is a number of subgroups that arose within the baby boom generation. You have the yuppies, the young urban professionals. You have the oinks, one income, no kids. The dinks, dual income, no kids. Uh, the generation is sometimes called the 60s generation for obvious reasons. 
and somewhat pejoratively referred to as the me generation. Some of the important formative experiences that shaped the life and mentality of the baby boomers was the ever imposing and impending Cold War, the rise of television as a brand new technology, economic affluence was a reality for this generation. It's It's a people that are high on education and technology. This was a time when rock and roll music appeared on the scene and the space race uh, heated up, eventually putting men on the moon. It was an important time for the civil rights movement, for the women's movement. Unfortunately, it was a time of terrible assassinations. President Kennedy, Bob Kennedy, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It was the time of the Vietnam War, sexual revolution, the rise of the drug culture, and of course, the Watergate scandal that really made our country very untrusting of authority. When we talk about the characteristics of a generation, I guess we need to be a little bit cautious that anytime you make a generalization about a group of people, you can't say that every characteristic fits every person in that group. But nevertheless, as sociologists study this group, we observe, of course, that it's an educated group of people, media-oriented, independent, and tend to be cause-oriented. They want to make a difference in the world and and support an important cause. They're fitness-conscious, action-oriented. They desire high quality with things, including their worship experience, and they tend to question authority. When we think about the baby boomers as they exist today, some of the current areas of concern for them is that they're on a spiritual search Many want a return to traditional values, have come kind of full circle from their life experience. They want a slower lifestyle. Many seek second or even third career opportunities. Finances, of course, is an important subject, and they're in the middle of midlife transitions, many. Some are preparing for retirement, and frankly, many of them already are retired now. This was interesting. The oldest baby baby boomer, if you think about it, the oldest baby boomer turns 72 this year. The youngest baby boomer turns 54 this year. In terms of the religious character of this generation, these are people that want to experience their faith. They're committed to relationships, including the community of the church. They want to belong. And they want to see a clear purpose and vision for what the church is doing. They have high expectations for quality in their church life. I'm seizing the opportunity to interview a baby boomer today. I'd like to invite Mr. Bob Jane to join me up here for a few moments. Uh, Bob is willing to uh, be grilled in front of you all. No, I'm just teasing. Bob, thank you for uh, your willingness to talk with me. Uh, Bob and I share at least uh, two things in common. Uh, We are both sons of Lutheran Church Missouri Synod pastors. 
and we're also both baby boomers. Although, Bob, you went to high school in the 1960s, is that right? Yes, I yeah. graduated from uh, Lutheran High East, Detroit, Michigan, in uh, 1966. 1966, and I graduated from high school in 1977, so we're kind of at two ends of the spectrum of the baby boom generation. Uh, but tell us when and where you were born and then raised. I was born in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana in May of 1948, and uh, my dad, as you said, was a pastor, and he... Um, received a call in 1953 to go to a mission church in Detroit. So I was basically raised in Detroit. Okay. From about five on or so? Yeah. Okay. Um, As you know, the baby boom generation was the first ever to grow up with the television. Uh, What do you remember about your first television? Well, that video clip that paid at the beginning of the service, that's what our TV looked like. It didn't have the push buttons. It had a turn dial. Oh, yeah. I was the remote control. Yeah, yeah. Bobby, get up, yeah, change Nothing the like this, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, you had to get up and do right, it. Right, right. Yeah. It was a black and white TV, and my mom and dad received that as a going-away gift from the congregation in New Orleans. So. Okay. And TV broadcast, uh, did they have, like, TV all night long? Oh, no. At midnight, the TV, all the channels went off the air. They would close with playing the national anthem and the flag waving in the background, and then a test screen would come on from midnight until maybe 6 or 7 in the morning. Yeah. I remember the black and white TV, too, and, and then later, when we finally got a color television, watching The Wizard of Oz on a color television was such a revelation, because I never knew that when Dorothy opened the door of the farmhouse, it was color. It was, for me, it was always black and white, right. right? What a revelation that was, yeah. Well, Bob, you served in the military. I did. Um, share with us which branch of the military you were with, and when and where you served. Well, I was drafted into the United States Army in February of 1968, and then I went to basic training, some advanced training, and then early September 1968, I was sent to Vietnam, and I served in Vietnam from 19, October, or September 1968 till October 1969. Okay, and you, you provided us a few photos of yourself in Vietnam, so this is Bob. I was young uh, once. <laughs> how old were you there? I was uh, 20 years old right there. 20 years old, and what was this vehicle that you were driving? So I was assigned that uh, vehicle is a, uh, it's classified as a 10-ton semi-truck, and the trailer on the back was called a dragon wagon, and it was specifically built to haul uh, tanks and heavy equipment, artillery and such. So is that a tank on the back of that That is trailer? a tank, yes. Okay. And then on the front of the truck, it says Magic Bus. What, what is that all about? Well, <laughs> these trucks were so big, they were assigned two soldiers to it. So I drove, and then my best friend, Don Marchant, um, rode shotgun, and he's actually the one that named it. And um, our platoon had a cute nickname for us, since my last name is Jane. Don became Tarzan. So we were known as Tarzan and Jane. Tarzan and Jane. All right. All right. You're a good team together, I'm sure. We were. Okay. Well, we all know that upon returning home, many Vietnam veterans, unfortunately, were not welcomed home as heroes, but instead experienced derision and even hostility. Uh, what was your experience when you came home from Vietnam? Well, I was pretty fortunate. I didn't have too much... Um, you know, bad things happened to me other than a childhood friend of mine that grew up, we grew up together down the block. He got in my face when I returned and, you know, called me a baby killer and, you know, so on. Uh, but for the most part, I didn't experience too much of that. Okay. All right. Well, in thinking about the 1960s and the early 1970s, those certainly were turbulent years uh, for both good and bad reasons, you might say. Uh, some of the 
good things that happened is uh, our country made some important strides forward in civil rights, for example. Uh, space exploration made huge, le- huge leaps forward, uh, putting men on the moon. Uh, but some of the bad things, of course, included the uh, terrible assassinations, John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Um, there was the rise of the drug culture and the sexual revolution, violent protests in, in the cities. Uh, I think of the Kent State shootings in 1970. And, of course, the ever-looming Cold War. Here's my question in thinking about all of those things that were going on. As a Christian, viewing all of that, what would you say was the impact on religious life in America? Well, during that part of our culture, um, I view that as a, uh, the first steps in the decrease of uh, Christianity and churchgoers. You and Pastor John have cited the dwindling numbers of people that are active in churches anymore. And I view that time period as the jumping off point, if you will. Hmm. Yeah. One last question. If you were able to sit and talk with a group of teenagers today, uh, what words of wisdom would you want to share with them? Uh, I would strongly encourage them to get active in the youth program. When I was growing up, a teenager, we, a Lutheran church had what was called the Walther League. We were very active in that. And um, just this past summer, our high school graduating class had their 51st class reunion. And a lot of the kids that I grew up in my church also went to Lutheran High. So now we're 51 years later, we're still good friends, you know, oh, yeah. and are still active in the church. Well, that's wonderful. Well, Bob, I want to thank you for, uh, for being willing to do this. It took an amazing amount of courage to serve in Vietnam, uh, maybe just as much courage to do this in front of everybody, but thank you so much. But I want to have you stand and just stay here for just a moment. And I want to ask anyone else who served in the Vietnam War to please stand and be recognized. Anybody else serve in the Vietnam? We had a number in the other service. We want to thank you for your faithful service to our country. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Bob. Each week as we focus on a generation, we're also taking a look at a biblical character from whom we can derive some life lessons to apply not only to the generation at hand, but to each of our, our generations. And the example today is, uh, is that of David from the Old Testament. If you think about it, David himself was the result of a baby boom of sorts in that his own parents had ten children, eight boys and two girls, and David was the youngest son. As a young boy, of course, David had the chore of taking care of the family's flock of sheep. Uh, he learned, maybe this is what he might have looked like, who knows, he, he, he learned not only how to lead the sheep uh, uh, to better pastures, but he also learned how to protect the sheep against predators, wolves and lions and so on. And then as a young man, David used his skills that he learned as a shepherd boy, along with his trust in God, to slay the Philistine warrior Goliath in that well-known story. Already back when David was just a young boy, you remember that David was told by God through the prophet Samuel that he would be the king of Israel. Of course, Saul was the first king, but Saul was not a man who honored God and was removed from his office. 
David eventually succeeded Saul as the king of Israel. And David was a great king during the prime of the spiritual history of Israel. He's described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. He was a spiritual man. He he played the harp. He played music. He wrote music. He wrote his own songs. Those songs are the psalms, many of the psalms in the Bible. They were, of course, set to music. They were used in worship, and they were expressions of David's faith and that of others as well. But, of course, as we all know, David, like all of us, had his imperfections. He had his experiences of rebellion, if you will, which is certainly true of many baby boomers and I dare say true of all of us. David had his imperfection and it appeared in a rather blunt way. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, as you recall, and then he went one step further. He made sure that Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, was put out in the front line of battle and then pulled his men back and allowed Uriah to basically be slaughtered in battle as, as a way of getting rid of him. David, David then tried to cover this all up. It was not a good time in his life. And God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David about his sin, saying, David, you are the man. David took that to heart. Instead of persisting in his defense of himself, he repented. He repented of his sin and he was restored in that right relationship with his God. It was after that whole experience that he wrote the words that we read together at the early part of the service, Psalm 51. It really was his prayer of honesty about confessing his sinfulness and seeking God's grace. I want to read just the opening verses of that section again, and I want you to listen to the depth of David's honesty as he writes this prayer. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. You hear the honesty in his voice, the utter self-transparency about who he is. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He acknowledges what we call original sin. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, he prays, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. And he was washed clean by the grace and mercy of a loving God. David experienced restoration. Now, unfortunately, as the story goes on in David's life, He did not do a very good job, quite frankly, of passing along the torch of faith to his own children. In fact, when you read the stories of David's children, they're a mess. His family is a mess. And in fact, after the time of David's reign, 
the kingdom of Israel began a spiritual decline, a spiral down, much like what we're seeing in our country today, a spiritual decline. As Bob referred to a moment ago, the builder generation, those born before 1946, are the most faithful of all five. Two-thirds of the builders are believers in Jesus. Us baby boomers, only one-third are believers in Jesus. And it gets worse with each generation following. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. You know, during the age of the baby boomer generation, a key word for us was the word peace. And it was usually accompanied with this sign, right? Peace. And at the time, of course, it meant a call for peace in the world, peace in our country. But God offers such a greater kind of peace. And the first takeaway lesson from the story of David is this, that the road to real peace is repentance and restoration. Repentance and restoration. If David can be a model for us baby boomers and for all of us, it's that however far away we have strayed or rebelled against God's ways, If we repent, it's a road back to true peace. For there we find restoration. God is so eager to restore us. And the greatest peace symbol of all is not this one. It's that one. It's the cross. That's the greatest peace symbol of all. Because that is where God made peace with us. Through the death of His own Son the one called the son of David. Yes, the one descended from David. Yes, the one born in the same town David was born in. That one gave his very life on a cross precisely to restore us into a relationship with God. And that symbol of the cross has those two beams. That vertical beam reminds us that we are in peace again with the Father. We've been reconciled to God through Jesus' death on the cross. We've been made friends with God again, vertically. But the horizontal bar on that cross reminds us that we also can have peace with one another. We can live in peace with each other because Jesus Christ died for all of us and forgives our sins. The road to real peace is repentance and restoration. A second takeaway for us is this. The road to real freedom is forgiveness. Now, catch what I mean by this. Sometimes we can hold on to our resentments against those who have hurt us. But we need to recognize that God has forgiven us so much more than the harms that we have received that now we need to forgive each other. Let me just ask you, whom do you need to forgive? Baby boomers, maybe, just maybe, it's your builder parents. Or maybe it's your own children. Or maybe it's some other person in your life that has hurt you. You know, we can hold on to our resentments, but it just makes us captive to our resentments, our anger, our hatred. The road to real freedom is to forgive, to let all that go. 
It doesn't condone what that person did, but it sets you free, you see. The New Testament Greek word for forgive means to throw away. You don't let garbage pile up in your house for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. You throw it away. When we hold on to resentment and bitterness and anger, it's like piling up the garbage in our heart and our soul and our life, and it stinks after a while. The road to real freedom is the forgiveness that God has given us and that we can give to others. It was heartening in the 1970s to see some changes happening among the baby boom generation. There was a transition happening. There were trans, there, some, some, not all, but some were transitioning from the me generation to the Jesus generation. And that song we sang a few moments ago was one of the very first early contemporary Christian songs, Pass It On. I remember singing it as a young camper at Arrowhead Lutheran Camp in Southern California. We sang it at beach camps. We sang it with our youth group. And then it came into the church service with a guitar, and that set everybody a little bit on edge. You remember those days? And the song is a little dated now, but it still is a good reminder to us all that we need to pass on the faith to others, and especially to those of the generations that follow us. As our theme verse for this series states so clearly, Joel 1 verse 3, tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. Well, fellow boomers, we have much to offer in the mission of leading people to follow Jesus. We indeed as a generation have been abundantly blessed and we need to remember that we are blessed to be a blessing. We're not to keep it to ourselves, we are to give it away. And to everyone here, whichever generation you represent, remember, we're all in this together. Next Sunday, we're going to take a look at what sometimes is called Generation X, those born between 1965 and 1980. Let's pray. Lord God, we do ask that you would empower each of us to catch the vision of passing on the faith to others. Help us not to be hesitant, but help us to be ready to forgive and to extend your grace for Jesus' sake. Amen. At this time, we gather the offerings for the Lord's work. Uh, Would you also uh, place your name and other information in the black registration booklet in the pew and pass it to your neighbor, please?